Welcome to another episode of the Prague Cast, a podcast for progressives and free thinkers. In this first season, we'll be discussing dangerous ideas, ideas that people in power want to censor because they believe that these ideas are harmful, but in fact are the same ideas that put scholars in danger because those in power don't like them. This podcast is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. I'm Tammy Jackson, and I'll be your host for today. In this episode, I'll be chatting to none other than Professor Jonathan Jansen. Professor Jansen is a well-known and internationally renowned expert in education. He was a former rector and vice chancellor at the University of the Free State. Professor Jansen is arguably one of the leading thought leaders in South Africa, and he has written quite a number of books and articles related to the state of education in South Africa, as well as the state of our institutions of higher learning. Needless to say that Professor Jansen has indeed played a huge role in contributing to South Africa's political discourse, whether you agree with him or not. Prof, welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's get right into it. So there are a couple of pressing issues facing South Africa at this present moment. Our economy is failing to grow at a favorable rate. Unemployment is at an all-time high. And crime and corruption continues unabated. And of course, we have a looming energy crisis that just won't go away. But in between all of the rhetoric and news stories that generally dominate the media space, it's quite evident that one of the conversations that we are failing to have as a country is that of access to quality tertiary education, opportunity and how teaching and learning ought to take place for maximum impact. While not too long ago, student movements such as Roads Must Fall and Fees Must Fall shook the country, it seems the momentum has somewhat fell into the abyss. And one of our observations related to the student protests is that what many analysts usually tend to focus on are the optics. And while this is important, we believe that what many don't seem to engage on is the concept of academic freedom in relation to student protests. So, Professor, I would like to ask you, what exactly does academic freedom mean to you? So, academic freedom for me, you know, historically it was always associated with um, the freedom to 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 research anything, to teach anything, to uh, speak out about anything uh, without fear of, of retribution, you know. And, and it was, uh, in particular, uh, uh, used, uh, in relation to academic teachers, to academic researchers. So, uh, no university, for example, or no government should be able to tell a, a, an academic that you cannot do research on this topic or publish on that topic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, the thing with academic freedom, as with any kind of social freedom, you don't really, uh, miss it until it's gone, you know. And we, as you know, lived through the apartheid era in which academic freedom was a serious issue, so much so you could lose your life. Think of uh, uh, South African academics who actually died for standing for something, you know, um, uh, 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 and so on, uh, shot in the case of David Webster, for example, uh, and so on, went to prison. And and one of the things about authoritarian societies is once those habits are ingrained in your society, 
uh, they don't quite disappear. They don't quite go away. So while 1994 brought democracy, it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. We have to be, as they say in that beautiful Afrikaans expression, opons hude. You know, you've got to be on the alert uh, 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 for those bad habits to come creeping back in. And we've seen this. I don't want to mention specific universities. We've seen universities where vice chancellors, for example, you know, um, uh, try to restrain uh, uh, academics from doing research and on, on particular topics or speaking out on others. People have lost their jobs in mass at one of our universities on the East Coast and so on. So, um, uh, for me, uh, a program like this, you know, a, uh, academic freedom lecture such as you have at, at, at some of our universities is a very important reminder that we must never lose ground to, uh, to people. We insist on shutting you up uh, as an academic. Now, there's also academic freedom in the student community. You know, uh, think of something as simple as uh, a white uh, uh, student or faculty member wanting to speak, you know, in the Sarah Bartman Hall during a protest movement and somebody gets out. No, white people can't speak in this. That, apart from just being pure stupid, that is a threat to academic freedom. That's the threat to everybody having the right to say what they feel and so on and so forth. None of us are talking here about agreement. We're simply talking about that space which a university provides. And as I often say to people, the university is different as an institution from a church or a mosque or a synagogue. It is different from a sports club or a cultural, you know. Uh, and it is the one space in which anybody should have the uh, 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 the room in which to say what they think, and uh, even if it's bizarre, even if it's completely yes. unacceptable, when you shut that down, whether it's students or or, or academic staff, you are shutting down academic freedom. Uh, Prof, I think it's quite fitting that you mentioned that. Um, I'd like to read an excerpt from a recent speech that you delivered at the University of Cape Town in December 2019. And I think that this speech and the content thereof is something that Progress SA has advocated for since our inception. You said the following, open quotation, What is this thing we call a university? You see, a university in essence is a place where reason triumphs over rage. It is a place where our common humanity matters more than our racial nicknames. It is the only place where anybody and everybody can speak without fear of being shut up. This is what makes a university different from a church or a political party or the Boy Scouts. Your membership does not depend on shared beliefs. There is no party whip to keep you in line. There is no secret oath that binds members to a common cause. I would be remiss on this grand occasion if I did not warn you that in South Africa today, that ideal of the university is under threat. When you burn down things at a university because you are angry, you undermine what a university is for. When you hide and conceal artworks that you do not like, you threaten the idea of a university. When you tell white students and white colleagues that they cannot speak in the learning commons, you make a mockery of what a university stands for. 
When you question an academic appointment because the colleague is not a real South African, you are hastening the demise of the university. When you refuse to meet and engage with your academic colleagues because they hold different views from you or might even be critical of your work, then you diminish the idea of a university. Close quotation. Professor, can you explain to our listeners what exactly led you to reiterate such important ideas, especially in a time where people have seemingly forgotten about them? Right. So, you know, I obviously had in mind the period 2015-16 when we had historic protests on most of our university campuses for different reasons, but the two main issues, as you recall, was the fees issue and the issues of uh, of transformation uh, or what the students at the time, wrongly in my view, called decolonization. But that's another debate. Those are very important moments. I uh, I believe in student activism. I was one myself. I, I believe that from time to time, generations of students have to bring to the public mind and to the institutional conscience issues of injustice and so on and so forth. So that in and of itself, for me, was a very important uh, moment in South Africa's uh, history. What I don't subscribe to, is the notion that in order to get what I want, I must break down what I don't like. That for me is just, you know, completely uh, uh, counterintuitive uh, when it comes to this special thing we call a university. So, uh, as you know, across our campuses, take at Rhodes University, for example, let's go and collect men whom we suspect, you know, might be... uh, rapist or sexual assault, etc., and round them up without any evidence, without any due process, without anything, and and haul them up and, and put their names in some public list and so on and so forth. Do you know how dangerous that is? Now, what disturbs me about that is that here is a completely legitimate cause, and indeed a very serious one, okay, that you then undermine by overriding the freedoms of others, okay, and so on. That's what, and there was a lot of those kinds of things where the cause itself is legitimate, but the methods for getting there break down a very important principle within institutional life and within democracy, which is, in this case, the right to a fair trial, you know, etc. So um, I can understand as a black South African who, you know, has to engage with whiteness in all different kinds of forms every single day. I also sometimes lose it, I'll be honest with you, you know. Uh, but hey, if I start to, to, to tell people who can speak and who can't speak, if I can say, you know, I don't like these artworks, so I'm starting to burn it down, even if those artworks includes because I'm ignorant, uh, the works of progressive people, you know, <laughs> as we see that. Which is what happened. Which is what happened. The artists from Kells River, the Black Sash yes. Woman's Portrait. That's what ignorance does, okay? But what's dangerous in that is, now I'm not saying we shouldn't from time to time review our artworks and replace and, and enrich and so on. That's not uh, what I'm saying. But I am saying if our instincts is to be violent, in the face of things we don't like. Apart from the violence, what you're also doing is breaking down this idea of the university as a space in which we debate, in which we discuss, in which we contend, in which we argue and counter-argue. When you lose that, in the long term, the institutional damage is much greater. Let me give you a very good example of this. 
I was certainly a student in 1976, right? I was new first year, I think, at university and so on and so forth. I applauded, like everybody else, the protests against, uh, you know, apartheid education, whether it was in Soweto or whether it was in Athlone or whether it was in Etheridgeville. So think of different parts of the country, Chatsworth, where we had huge movements. Okay. That in and of itself was worthy and important, and I think that was the start of the end of apartheid, if you ask me. In the process, we broke down the institution of schooling so that to this day, who are the schools doing well? Just Let's just take our, our town here. It's all the schools along this main road, Westerford, Rustenburg Junior, Bishops, uh, Rondebosch Prep, right? What's happening in the township schools? We've lost the authority of the teacher. The unions don't want inspections. How do you know if a teacher can teach or not? No, don't ask me. And certainly don't test them. Okay. How do you get schools to start on time and finish on time? Or so? No, no, no. We, you know, the complete breakdown of black schooling in particular. Okay. Is so serious right now that if you took all the white schools out of the matric results, you'll see what South Africa's education system really looks like. So what my point is this that sometimes a legitimate protest against injustice proceeds by methods that breaks down the institution of schooling in this case or the institution called the university in another case. And that's what I I am concerned about. I'm not concerned about the fire of the moment I'm cons- and the fury of the moment. That I can understand. What I'm concerned is what else is lost in the fire, okay? And that is what I'm warning about because I have lived and worked in universities in other parts of our continent, okay? And I have seen our great universities go down, okay, because of people not being on their guard against the other things you also lose when you start to break down and struggle against injustice. Um. Yeah, Professor, I mean, I agree with you on both of the things that you just mentioned. Um, but I also want to ask you, let's just move away from the fact that a lot of um, infrastructure was burned down during the 2015-2016 FISMAS 4 protests. And let's look at, for instance, how a lot of student protests ended up intimidating a lot of students um, for simply just existing within that protest space. And I mean, I can relate to this because I was in a tutorial once in the physical science building and a protester came into the classroom and started blowing whistles in our ears and, um, you know, stamping on the desk and we were all forced to move out. Um, and so I would like your view on, you know, just instances where students were coercing other students um, to participate um, and also just in some cases accusing everyone else of not taking the issue seriously. Uh, what is your view on that? Look, I have very firm views on this. I believe in the right of students to protest. Uh, I would personally, I've joined some of the student protests from time to time. You know, I've used my own money to bail students out of prison and that kind of thing. I believe in the legitimacy of, of those struggles. What I don't believe in is that other people suddenly have no rights. So if a student, for whatever conviction, whether it's a more liberal or conservative or whatever, uh, decides, no, but I want to finish my education on time because this is my way of getting my family out of poverty, blah, blah, blah. 
that right is also sacrosanct. You can't just uh, uphold the rights of some and not uphold the rights of others, you know. So the disruption of a classroom or an examination and so on for me is total nonsense, you know. But we're so intimidated and, and very often academics, uh, you know, even at our liberal universities, are so confused about the purposes of a university and about the nature of a democracy. They then jump on the bandwagon. <laughs> for what? Yes. You know, so we, you, you break down your institutions in that way, but you also begin to undermine your democracy when the, the, the kind, the terms of struggle, for example, uh, under apartheid becomes the terms of struggles now. When the way in which you deal with the municipal manager in the township is the way you deal with the, you know, senior management of your university. Again, don't misunderstand. I really do believe that we should be challenged. I really do believe that there's a, there is a role for disruption. What I don't believe is that in pursuing your goals of a more just society, you trample on the rights of everybody else. That is unacceptable for me. And people didn't just go in, by the way, on many of these campuses and blow whistles. In some places, they beat people up. I remember lecturers, uh, you know, being, I remember somebody who wasn't even a student at UCT, you know, whom I know very well, you know, punching the vice chancellor. Oh, no, 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 no. This, this for me is absolute nonsense. And if you don't understand, as I said, if I go back to the metaphor, if you don't understand what else is being lost in this fire, you don't understand how really good universities can just become like any other post-colonial university. And then people send the, the middle classes, you know, send their children to universities uh, in North America, in Western Europe, and so on and so forth. Um, Prof, I want to go back to just uh, discussing the whole concept of academic freedom because I think we we um, spoke a lot about uh, fees must fall in relation to the academic freedom, but I want to just deal with the definition right now. So academic freedom to me seems to be this one concept that whenever spoken of should never really be taken at face value. And the reason why I'm saying that is because Many academics who view themselves as being these paragons of virtue and social justice will sometimes refer to the importance of context. Um, and what this does is it can sometimes change the meaning or definition of academic freedom, depending on the situation that you find yourself in. And in turn, it can also obscure one's understanding. And so an example of this um, could be the sentiments expressed by an advocacy group called the PSF or the Palestinian Solidarity Forum, who believes that academic freedom, specifically at UCT where they are quite active, can only be realized when the freedom of the Palestinian people is realized. Now, whether one is pro or anti an Israeli boycott at UCT or any other institution of higher learning, would you consider such sentiments a threat to academic freedom? Absolutely. So I, I am a, um, a great believer in the struggle for the rights, um, the human rights really of the Palestinian people. And I have done, uh, you know, a lot to, to fund and attract students here and also to support academics there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't believe that you can put on hold academic freedoms 
because of a particular cause. And remember, there's there's a hundred causes I can think about around the world right now, you know. And we are selective in choosing those causes. Where were all of our activists when Robert Mugabe as Chancellor of the University of Zimbabwe was, you know, uh, you know, beating up his people, imprisoning his lecturers, you know, um, and putting students into into misery. Where were we, you know? So whether it's the Palestinian issue or the 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 demise of academic freedom at the University of Zimbabwe, and I mean, I, you can take your pick all the way from here to Syria if you wish. Uh, we've got to be consistent here, but we cannot in the strategy to get to a legitimate freedom put, you know, uh, other things on hold, especially academic freedom. So I want to hear from the voices of people who are on the other side of the debate of the, of the BDS. I really want to hear the voices of of Palestinians and, by the way, of comrades within, progressive comrades within the Israeli universities. There are a lot of people like that, you know, the left in, in Israel, as to how one creates some kind of uh, common ground for an important dialogue about uh, the nature of the crisis and the way to resolve it, et cetera, et cetera. But um, this is something that I can assure you weighs heavily on my mind, um, uh, which is the Palestinian crisis, in part because of America's role in, in you know, basically uh, uh, upholding and 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 justifying uh, the the um, behavior of the of the Israeli government. But don't confuse the government with the people, okay? Especially in those cases. So yeah, I I think it's a passionate issue. It's an issue about which I also have strong feelings. But if if I mean one of the reasons we're having this debate in South Africa right now is because, as I suggested earlier these bad habits from the past, whether it was in implementing apartheid or struggling against it, sort of continues into the present. And it puts us all at risk, you know, from making sure our universities are vibrant institutions, both socially and politically on the one hand, but also academically and intellectually on the other hand. And when you begin to to undermine for short-term strategic purposes the one set of issues like academic freedom in search of some kind of a political, um, you know, issue on the other, in the long term, our institutions suffer. So in essence, Professor, you would say that academic freedom should never depend on context, the situation. It remains constant all the time. No, no, absolutely. You know, it's like your human rights, okay? Well, we're going to sort of suspend your human rights until we can deal with this issue. What nonsense is that? You know, I mean, it doesn't work like that. So I really believe in principle here. What is the principle on which we base our struggle? And, you know, Cape Town has a very rich tradition. Let me give an example of where this applies in Cape Town. Uh, uh, A good friend of mine and one of South Africa's great scholars, Professor Crane Sodin, has just written a book called The Cape Intellectuals. Cape Town had a tradition because of the very rich ideological and political kind of movements of the Cape, which is very different from some other parts of the country. It had this tradition that regardless of what we're struggling for, you don't interrupt the education of a child. You would never see the new unity movement sort of say, no, you're not going to school, okay? Do you know why that was important? Because it understood that you couldn't suspend access to education for the poor, okay, in order to reach a short-term political objective. You needed to be able to 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 chew bubblegum and walk at the same time, okay? You needed to... About both of those uh, principles. And that is why 
I think that when you make those kinds of compromises, you know, that you lose in the long term because the strength of your institution. That's why, by the way, let me just say why qualitatively the school results in Cape Town always look better than the rest of the country. Qualitatively, it's because in part of that tradition of saying we're not sacrificing the education of our children for any political gain in the what's name. Unfortunately, that's not true for much of the rest of the country, which is why we suffer. So something interesting that has come to light last year was the University of Cape Town's Curriculum Change Working Group, a body that was set up to produce strategies for meaningful curriculum change at the university. Essentially, the goal of the working group was to completely overhaul parts of the current curriculum after student activists decried certain bodies of knowledge as being products of white Western culture. Professor, I would love to get your view on the decolonization of university curriculums. Look, um, First of all, I think it's the wrong word. You know, we not we no longer colonized. You know, uh, um, we were you know a long time ago, um, and I refuse to believe that uh, the uh, that we're simply a victim of you know colonial legacies. That's not true. Uh, as I've written in in my book on decolonization, uh, there are a whole lot of different influences on our curriculum on knowledge. You know. Uh, from both the the pre-colonial period, the colonial period, the period of segregation after Union in 1910, apartheid itself, and for 25 years, a democratic government. So this notion that we are somehow victims to some, you know, ugly, brute colonial forces, nonsense, uh, that doesn't mean there aren't legacies of colonialism, but let's talk about them in the context of knowledge. What are the two biggest legacies of colonialism today? The one is... Um, English. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> what are we going to do about English? Okay. Well, here's a difficult thing that Chinua Achebe, one of the great, uh, you know, uh, novelists and, and intellectuals of, of, of Africa, uh, said, he said, I can recognize the problem with English, but I don't know how to get out of it. Okay. Because English is a way of empowering yourself to speak back, both at the metropole, but also a way of empowering yourself to engage in a different kind of relationship with the West, which is, for me, partnership as opposed to, you know, enmity or, and so on and so forth. The other is assessment. I, I, uh, I think it's a great idea. We just got rid of all the assessments because assessment is really a form of control that has its roots in, for example, in schools, in the Cambridge Examination Syndicate, in colonial control and so on. You try and suggest to any university that we're going to do away with assessment, you'll see how the system collapses. So it's not that there aren't legacies, it's that there are also legacies that we can't resolve and that we can use, by the way, to our advantage, you know, as, by the way, Zimbabwe uses in its school system, which makes it one of the strongest school systems in, in Southern Africa. So, so, uh, um, yeah, I, I, you know, there are issues of race and racism. There are issues of inequality and inequity. But to give it a, a, a loose label like decolonization for everything is, for me, as a social scientist, actually quite scary because it means you become uh, irresponsible in your use of language, you know, uh, etc. So there's no thinking going on. 
uh, you know, even some of the very smart people at UCT, you know, just in case I get caught out, just in case they embarrass me, you also go on the decolonization bandwagon. My Lord, I tell you, I can't, it's, it's very embarrassing. It's very embarrassing to me as somebody who works with words every day, you know, that we can be so scared on the one hand and so irresponsible on the other hand. That doesn't mean the curriculum mustn't change. That doesn't mean that we need to center knowledge around some very important things. That's what I do all the time as a active university teacher. It's what a lot of people, by the way, if you go and look at UCT's uh, curriculum in um, archaeology, it's probably one of the most progressive curricula, most decolonizing, you want to use that term, in the world. Okay? So this notion that students had that nothing had changed since 1994, I used to hear that occasionally when I was a vice chancellor, was not only disingenuous, it was dishonest, you know? Having said that, how do you actually change the university curriculum? That's a book that I'm working on right now with some of my postdocs. It turns out to be very, very difficult. Give me an example. You go to the University of Stellenbosch, okay, where I am at the moment, where 95% of the professoriate is white and Afrikaans and probably a good 70% of them is conservative. And you're telling that professor in genetics or mechanical engineering or whatever, you need to decolonize. A, the guy doesn't know what it's about, okay? B, even if he or she did, they don't know what to do with it. Because decolonization isn't simply changing the content of the curriculum, it's changing the way in which you think about knowledge and power, uh, about inequality and social justice, about knowledge and its transformative uh, authority. But you can't give people who have been raised in the con- in my particular context in knowledges from Africana nationalism for years and think you can just switch the light on and off if Eskom allows you, you know, Um and you get new knowledge. So there is a level of naivete about how curriculum change happens and does not happen. And this is something I've studied all my life, you know. That means that despite that huge upheaval of 2015-16, I can guarantee you there might be changes on the surface. I can guarantee you the deep knowledge that is so deeply entrenched in our disciplines hasn't changed at all. That is why at Salenbosch you could have somebody producing published research in April 2019 on colored intelligence. Hello? <laughs> okay, where did that come from? I just finished an article with one of my postdocs uh, this week, uh, for this week, on two disciplines, anatomy and genetics. Do you know how shot through that is with racist assumptions about uh, science? That for me is transforming knowledge. I don't know if it's decolonizing is the wrong word, but that is deeply transforming the knowledge that our students get in the name of, um, you know, uh, teaching and research. And so we're not dealing with the real issues. We la- we're good at labeling stuff. Okay. Think of this label, white monopoly capital. Do you know how long it took people to find out that the white monopoly capital concept was constructed by white monopoly capitalists in London, okay, on behalf, uh, in order to cover up Jacob Zuma and the ANC's corruption. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, Land expropriation without compensation. Another label. Between you and me. I think it's a good idea. But you know, it's not going to happen. You know why? Because if we were serious about land reform, the people in District 6 would have gotten their land way back in 1995. So we must stop labeling things, you know, and think that by labeling it, we position ourselves as progressive. 
but it does not lead to change. And this is the case with decolonization as well. It's a nice term, I suppose, if you try to look smart, but it doesn't change what I call the, forgive me the big words, the epistemological bedrock, in other words, the knowledge upon which uh, so much of our curricula are based in our uh, 26th university. So, Professor, it seems as if the whole term transformation, just like decolonization, seems more of a yay term where someone stands up on a podium and the audience applauds, but there isn't really much meaning to it in terms of how it can actually change anyone's life uh, for the better. Um, and I think that's the lesson here with decolonization, right? Um Moving on to our next question. Let me, let me just tell you something. You know what's very interesting about the flakiness of these important concepts? Do you know at UJ, they went from transformation to decolonization, like many universities, because decolonization sounded more radical than transformation, which was ANC discourse, right? Do you know nobody talks about decolonization today at UJ? Everybody's talking about, guess what? The fourth industrial Still revolution. revolution. <laughs> Five years from now, I'm telling you, there's a replacement concept. So we are shifty. We are, you know, we, we're not serious about the deep changes that we need. You know, as they said in my church, you know, quoting from the Bible, St. Paul, you know, where he warns people, says, and I like this for the prose, he says, don't be blown around by every wind of doctrine. So whoever comes and puts stuff in your ear, off you go. Yes, but even George Orwell wrote a whole book on the importance of language yes. and how one should use it and protect it because if you don't protect your language, I mean, you give those in power, um, you know, the ability or even more power to change things so radically. But by the time that, you know, the reality is different, it's almost irreversible. Um yeah, so I think that's actually quite important. And for our listeners, if you haven't engaged George Orwell's 1984 or English uh, politics in the English language book, I would highly encourage that. Okay, so moving on to the last or the second last question, rather. According to a report prepared for the Council of Higher Education on Academic Freedom, Institutional Autonomy and the Corporatized University in Contemporary South Africa, in 2004, Professor, you accused the Department of Education of undermining higher education institutions' autonomy and academics' freedom through the funding formulae and legislative intervention. Now, this brings us to the conversation about academic freedom in relation to the state. Prof, could you elaborate on the position you took at the time, which was in 2004? Do you believe that government or the state ought to have any power when it comes to how universities function? If not, why? And if so, when exactly is it appropriate for government or the state to intervene in anything? Right. So... I think that might have been the academic uh, freedom lecture at UCT. I really believe government has a role with respect to education broadly and higher education in particular. In the case of higher education, it has to adequately fund higher education from the public purse. I mean, it's not government's money, it's our money as taxpayers, right? So it has to adequately fund higher education, and that is its role. It then, as a funder of higher education, has another role, and that is to hold universities accountable 
for how that money is spent. So if you give the University of Vendor or the University of Cape Town, uh, for argument's sake, you know, uh, 800 million rands a year, you definitely have to make sure that they spend that accountably. What you cannot do in the process is tell a university what to teach or that these are the causes in which we will not give you money, but these are the causes in which you will. You can advise, you can suggest, but you can't tell a university what to teach. You certainly can't tell them whom to teach. And by God, you can't tell them who should teach. Did you know that there is some discussion, if not serious discussion in higher education at the moment in the department about whether we should appoint uh, foreign nationals at all or ahead of, uh, uh, you know, a South African? What nonsense is that? No university. Listen, I had the privilege of studying at two top universities in, in, in the U.S. I can tell you now, none of those universities became great only because they appointed local people, Americans. They became great because they took the German Nobel laureates from fleeing Nazi Germany. They became great because they took your top Swedish scientists. Do you know where the top West African academics are teaching right now? In the American universities. That's the notion of a university. That's what the word means when it implies universe as opposed to local, you know, only and so on and so forth. So this nativism in our culture, I mean, trust me, xenophobia isn't only something that happens in Dipsalot and the Dwarans. Xenophobia also happens on campuses, when we begin to think, as I suggested in that one line you read earlier, about who is a real South African, what nonsense. No, uh, to the extent that our universities are going to flourish, it's the extent to which the government has no say, okay? Just as in the case of Archie Maffege at UCT, those years, you're seeing it again in another form uh, of, of excluding people because you don't like them, because of where they come from, because of, you know, their faith or whatever the case might be, this is wrong. And and that's what I had in mind. It was an early warning system, if you wish, in 2004. And, and guess what? We're up against it now, uh, uh, et cetera. So as a funder, as somebody that might require as giving funds uh, uh, levels of accountability, I was very happy as a vice chancellor to say, here's our annual reports. Here's our spending patterns. Here is our audit reports, external, internal, and if necessary, forensic. That I'm happy to since you gave the money on behalf of the public. What I don't want is for you to decide who's going to be enrolled, what's going to be taught, who will be teaching, etc., uh, etc. Et then, then you have a different problem. Prof, while on this uh, same topic of the state and how it can actually influence academic freedom, um, do you think that this also holds true when it comes to university councils and having politicians sit on councils? Do you believe that this dilutes the autonomy of the university in any way? You know, I, I think to the extent that uh, a, a university council is broader than what you allow in the Senate. So it represents all the stakeholders, except when you participate, you don't participate as a stakeholder, but as a member of, uh, of the university uh, council. I, I love that. I love the fact that a local politician in, in Harry Smith could sit on the council of the university because he or she is concerned about regional development in, let's say, the Eastern Free State. I like that idea. Where it becomes messy is when the minister insists, for example, or a minister, that I don't just want my four or five uh, people there. I want six people there. I want seven people there. I want eight people. Where it becomes dangerous is when the people the minister puts on is not 
a politician working for development, but some ANC hack or some union hack or some communist party hack to advance the thinking of that particular faction in a political system. And in that way, of course, the minister then has control. Now, it has differed from one minister to the next. You get ministers like Naledi Pando, who, who, who was who genuinely understood the academic project and didn't put people there or press for higher numbers, you know, uh, in order to increase her influence. And, and that's why she was such a good minister. But not all of them are like that. Let me put, that, yes. <laughs> let me put it broadly. And so from time to time, uh, uh, one has to, again, be on alert for the attempt to influence and control, not in terms of, you know, budgetary spending or, you know, ethical accountability and that kind of stuff, which is important, but in terms of a particular, and there's some universities, let me tell you something, particularly in the northern parts of the country, in which those become hotly contested political functions, you know, as opposed to, because remember when you come, let me just repeat this, because people often forget what the fiduciary responsibility is of, of, of a council. When you get onto that council, you don't come as a student. You don't come, you might be there because of a student. You don't come for the unions. You come there to ask one question only, and that is, what is in the best interest of the university? <laughs> okay. And, and when people become factions on council, you get the kind of thing you saw at Fortier University recently, where you then have to have a thick, that you see at Val Triangle, University of Technology, uh, and so on. We've had this now for years, every year since my first university when I came back to South Africa was the University of Durban Westville. It was the first university when Nelson Mandela had to appoint a presidential you know, team to investigate and so on and so forth. In all those cases, it was because people didn't understand what the function of a council was, governance, as opposed to the function of management. Also on another note, history has taught us that when one's freedoms eventually become under threat, it was always the most subtle uh, means of actually getting to that point. Um, and I think that in the case of councils and the state wanting to infiltrate by having a higher number of politicians sit on councils, it's just one of those instances. Yes. That's a very important point. And it was a great Zimbabwean intellectual um, that said a few years ago, you know, Zimbabwe uh, did not become a basket case overnight. Y- yes, it's these exactly. It's very subtle, slow, sometimes invisible processes that bring down institutions. So, Professor, in ending, what do you believe can be done in order to protect academic freedom moving forward? I think a, a, f- a few things. One of the most important things is, is to make it an issue, right? Your program is making it an issue. I, I, I must tell you, I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm, suppose I'm too old to be impressed by things, uh, but this is mightily impressive that a group of young people, former students, student leaders, make this an issue for public discussion. Because if you don't make it an issue, then people don't know, you know, there's a, a concern that should be addressed. The other thing is to um, uh, for universities to do symbolic things that draw attention to it. That's why I like the academic freedom lecture, even though I think they've compromised themselves in turning down some speakers and not other speakers. We, we could, I mean, they, they became... Uh, you know, a complete set of hypocrites about their own mandate, you know, uh, uh, in terms of academic freedom. 
uh, etc. So, so to do symbolic things, to have an annual seminar on academic freedom, to make sure that in some of your causes, for example, in political science or in sociology uh, or higher education studies, you bring in issues of academic freedom. So also at a curricular level, um, you know, to populate the newspapers, you know, people only respond to what they read, you know. So everybody responds to the tragedy of the Parktown boys um, uh, uh, drowning. Did you know almost nobody responded to the Beckersdale primary drowning in the same week? Okay. Everybody responded to, rightly so, in the media, to the, the, the tragic killing of the UCT student in the Claremont Post Office. Did you know there were other students that died that week on campuses that didn't get a, a tenth of that coverage? The point is, use these outlets to make it an issue. Because until the one thing about politicians that I've discovered, they don't like seeing their names in the newspapers. They don't like seeing people making a fuss about things that they're hoping will just go away, you know. So this issue right now with ANC trying to change legislation in such a way that they can grab people's land more easily, I tell you, make a fuss about that and they'll back down, okay. So it's it's using the public spaces, the platforms, both within universities but outside universities, and then in civil society like you're doing, that I think keeps academic freedom alive as an issue to always be concerned about, uh, for no other reason, by the way, to repeat, than to make sure that 100 years from now, my granddaughter or great-granddaughter or whatever can still go to a university worth its name. Thank you so much, Professor, for that thought-provoking conversation and for also um, coming on to our show today. I think that we have quite a lot of work to do just in terms of advocating for the protection of academic freedom, especially in spaces like a university where it ought to flourish. We hope you enjoyed this episode with our special guest, Professor Jonathan Jansen. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, we are most active on Twitter, where you can find us at ProgressRSA. And if you'd like to find out more about Progress, you can visit our website, www.progress.org.today. And lastly, if you'd like to follow Professor Jansen's regular commentary and analysis on a number of topics, you can follow him on at JJ underscore Stellies. Until next time, keep thinking and keep thinking even when it's dangerous. <laughs>